Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett coming off that crazy game last night. The Celtics stole. That was an absolutely wild one last night at the Garden. We'll get into that in just a second, but we're going to chat with Andrew Callahan from the Herald, of course. Him and Karen Garigian had that great article this week about the dysfunction in the Patriots locker room, mainly on the offensive side of the football. So cannot wait to talk to Callahan about this because this is a tremendous piece of work that him and Karen Garigian did. If you haven't read it yet, I don't know what you're doing. Get out there and read this thing. It's phenomenal, but we're going to have a Great conversation with Andrew Callahan about the reporting that went into this and all these juicy details that we got in the story as well. We hit on it a bit on Thursday, but the guy that had the story, I cannot wait to talk to him about this. All right. But where else do we start but the Celtics? So that game, as we mentioned, just insane last night. And this is now becoming a trend with the Celtics team. The Warriors game was crazy a week ago Thursday. The Knicks game was crazy, right? You had the missed free throws from Jalen Brown. And then this one that we had last night. So there's so much meat on the bone with this game, and I have a lot to get to in terms of this one, but we have to start with the call, right? Or I should say the non-call, the referees. The Celtics got lucky. I mean, there's no way around it. The Celtics should have lost that game. LeBron James hits one free throw at the end there, and the Seas lose. And clearly, it was a foul on Jason Tatum. In fact, the officials after the game came out right away. Like, ordinarily, we get the two-minute report the next day. We got this immediately from the officials. Eric Lewis says after the game, there was contact at the time during the game. We did not see the foul. The crew missed the play. Very rarely do you get that from an officiating crew that immediately they tell you that essentially they fucked up. Now, if you were on the other side of this one, think about us as Celtics fans today, how we would feel like we would be completely pissed off like that missed call was absolutely pathetic from the officials. But let's also look at the fact that what LeBron James did after that was pathetic, right? Like, I understand he's frustrated, he's aggravated and all that, but what was that? I mean, he's kneeling on the floor and then he's got his head down on the floor and then he needs one of his teammates, Toscano Anderson, as like consoling him on the sideline, like between 
overtime and the end of regulation, like that was embarrassing what LeBron was doing. I mean, come on, man. Like, I understand it. You're pissed off. They missed a call. But I mean, be less dramatic than that. That was an absolute joke. And by the way, Beverly coming in with the camera, like I know a lot of people on Twitter today thought this is like hilarious that Beverly took the camera. I mean, come on, man. Like the guys fucked up. There's no doubt about that. They would admit after the game that they missed the call. But so unprofessional. The guy takes a camera from the sideline and brings it over to the official. That was embarrassing. And quite frankly, I agree with what Jeff Van Gundy said in the broadcast last night. It shouldn't just have been one technical foul. You should have kicked that guy out of the game right there. Although that would have worked against the Celtics because Beverly made a lot of mistakes in this game. I'll get into that in a little bit. But And also, the other thing I would say just in terms of the officiating crew, and this isn't on them, this is on the league, because the Lakers had previously used their challenge, they couldn't challenge. They're like, and I get it, it's under two minutes, so you can't challenge in that particular situation anyway. But because it's a non-call, you can't look at that at the end of the game. Like, there's got to be a way to get that call right at the end of the game. And look, I'm happy that the Celtics won, right? Like, they stole the game. That's awesome. I'm very happy that we're not Lakers fans today where they're pissed that the officials made the call. Like, I get all that. But, I mean, I'm just looking at it from a view of the league in general going forward. And you don't want this shit to continue to happen. That's just something the NBA has got to fix that because that should be overturned. Or, I mean, they should call a foul there at the end of the game and get that stuff right. But I would also like point to a couple of other things in this game. Like you think about with 130 left, you had Brogdon challenge where Brogdon has the block on Anthony Davis, right? And Tatum gets the ball. You can see clearly gets the ball. But what do the officials do after that challenge is successful from Joe Missoula is they have a jump ball at midcourt. I'm trying to figure out why would you have a jump ball at midcourt when Jason Tatum clearly had the ball? Like, And look, the Celtics get possession and all that. So I guess in some sense it worked out well for the Celtics, but it also would have been a fast break the other way because Tatum's coming off getting that steal that essentially Malcolm Brogdon had. I don't understand why that goes to a jump ball instead of just giving the ball to the Celtics there when there was a clear, to use the football term, recovery there. It made no sense to me whatsoever. All right, another thing I would point to is just Patrick Beverly is such an irritant. That guy annoys the hell out of me. Like, so 18.6 left in this game. You had the Beverly putback that gives the Lakers the lead, right? He is yelling at the Celtics bench, screaming at the Celtics bench like, dude, OK, congratulations. You had one putback and you're like clowning the Celtics bench like Patrick Beverly thinks he's this incredible player. And he's quite frankly, he's not that good. But then you had Jalen misses the wide open three. Beverly goes to the line, missed one of his free throws. Right. So then it's 105, 104 with four point one seconds left. Al Horford misses a three. Right. You miss a three or I should say you miss a three at the end of the game and then. You have the offensive rebound from Jalen Brown down by three points. Patrick Beverly fouls Jalen Brown and and one and Jalen. I mean, this is awesome for Jalen to hit the free throw at the end of the game after what had transpired the other night where he missed the two free throws. Julius Randle is laughing at him. But what a dumbass foul by Patrick Beverly. Like some of the stuff the Lakers were doing down the stretch of this game was just perplexing in many different ways. But Patrick Beverly, I love the fact that he clowned the Celtics bench and then right after that, what happens? Patrick Beverly's in a position where he makes arguably the dumbest play of the game by following Jalen Brown there. Just let him take the layup. You're still up a point. It makes no sense whatsoever. But I did want to get to Jalen because a massive bounce back for him, right? Hit the huge free throws we mentioned to send it to OT. Hit a couple of big clutch free throws in overtime as well. But you felt like, okay, Jalen's going to try to get off to a hot start. We know he's one of the best first quarter scorers in the NBA. He has 10 quick points in the first quarter. And I just love the fact that if you look at some of the stuff that he was doing in that first quarter, it's getting downhill, right? So 
you think about it right off the bat, sprints in transition to get a dunk, no jogging, just sprints right to the basket, doesn't get out to the three-point line or anything along those lines, just gets to the basket and gets a feed for Malcolm Brogdon. Then he had some off-ball movement where he gets a catch-and-shoot three. That's the type of threes that I don't mind Jalen Brown taking. Like, I hate the fact where he just pulls up, takes a three. Like, no, catch-and-shoot, move around, love all that. He's very good coming off screens and all that different type of stuff because he's a threat to get downhill as well. Then on semi-transition, sees the matchup is Schroeder after he gets a rebound. He just goes right at him, gets to the line. Love that. Make your physicality felt. And then with five minutes left in this game, he deflects the entry pass to Davis. It leads to a layup for Grant Williams. Nice defensive play by Jalen. And then with 327 left in the game, he had the smaller Brown on him. Jump stop, gets to the lane, gets to his mid-range game. So Jalen was in attack mode basically from the start. I mean, you think about it. Really, the only reason he didn't have more points in this game is because of the foul trouble. He comes back in in the third quarter with 644 left where he has five fouls and he bails Joe Mazzulla out, right? So this is after a timeout. Joe Mazzulla draws up a play and they have nothing. Like, there's nothing going on. I don't know what Joe Mazzulla drew up. And Jalen Brown hits this ridiculous fall away over Anthony Davis to cut it to 93-88. You shouldn't have scored on that possession. Jalen Brown just bailed you out. And it's kind of annoying that you come out of a timeout, you got nothing working for you in terms of, we see a lot of NBA teams, those ATOs, they score after those. The Celtics, it, it was a garbage play that Joe Mazzulla set up. But then you look at six minutes left. He had a nice drive to make it 95-90. And I just thought all in all, Jalen was really, really good in this game. I mean, a couple of other plays where you had a situation where he doesn't force it on a drive, right? Because we've seen Jalen get into trouble when he basically goes into the air. We talked about this the other night, but he had a nice drive to the lane. Two guys collapse on him. So instead of jumping up the air, he turns around, hits Al Horford for an open three in transition. And then you had the nice jump stop on Rui and he let Davis fly by him as well. And he gets a nice, easy layup. And then in overtime, he was just phenomenal, right? He, of course, he hit those big free throws and he has 11 points. You think about some of the stuff he did in OT. He gets to the line off the tip, right? So the Celtics win the tip. He just runs to the basket, gets the ball, gets to the line. And then, again, has the smaller shooter on him, rises up, shoots over him. He gets an and one to make it 110-107. He, at 4.15 left, he gets a rebound, hits a pull-up three. Those are where the pull-up threes are good, right? Because he's going with momentum, and he makes a nice read because he sees when he does that, Brown's going backwards, so that gives him the ability to take that open three. And then nothing doing with 50 seconds left in the game. You have nothing going on with the possession. This is where Jalen, we saw this all the time in the postseason last year. He bails out the offense where he hits a tough pull up at the elbow to make it a five point game to give the Celtics a 119-114 lead. And then 33 seconds left, catches the ball from Derek White after the inbound and he just runs. I don't know what the Lakers were doing, right? So this is after the Lakers score. White gets the inbound, Jalen runs, White passes on the ball. He just goes all the way to the basket and the Lakers are asleep at the wheel. It's unbelievable to me, but... You know what I love about Jalen in this game? Just the aggression, right? So you look at it. On the season, he's at 11.8 points in the paint per game. That's 14th in the NBA, so it's a good number. Last night, he's at 16. And how about this? I talk about him just running the floor. You realize Jalen Brown had 11 fast break points last night? The Celtics as a team had 22, okay? And if you look at it on the season, LeBron leads the NBA at 6.4. Jalen is eighth in the league at 3.9. Last night, he had 11 fast break points, which is just tremendous. So with Jalen last night, it's getting back to what he does well, right? Like, use your physicality, get downhill, don't settle for bad shots. And I do love the fact that 
in terms of not even when he didn't have the basketball, he's just running the floor and he's getting rewarded for that. Hence the fast break numbers. So that was the big thing to me out of this game from like the non-controversial aspect of it is Jalen Brown bounce back. You knew he would bounce back, but you did love to see Jalen Brown hitting those free throws late, right? Another thing I would say is Brogdon, just a massive game. He finishes with the 26 points and just a couple of plays that stuck out to me. He had just a hard drive and semi-transition to make it 75-72. Whenever he sees a smaller player, he just gets downhill. He had a transition three, which you love to see. And then he had a hard drive right with 520 left in the game to make it 96-92. to Then he had a step back three. And this is a really heady play, right? Where essentially Brown stayed on Jason Tatum. And Jason Tatum is the screener. It's been effective for the Celtics all season long. But essentially what happened is both guys went with Tatum as the screener and Brogdon just steps back and he hits the wide open three. I mean, that's the beauty of playing with a guy like Jason Tatum. That cut it to 98-96. And then you think about it too, 41 seconds left in the game. He drives left, he gets to the line with the score 102-100 and he ties the game up, right? And a lot of guys don't have the balls to do that when they're playing with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They're both on the court. These are superstar level players. Brogdon's been the best player on a team before. So he realizes, okay, I have a mismatch. It's Rui, who, by the way, the Lakers traded for. That guy is a god-awful defender. I mean, it looks like he's stuck in mud. That guy cannot move whatsoever. Brogdon just flies right by him, gets to the free throw line. And then later on in overtime, when he realizes Beverly's on him, a guy that the Celtics abused last night, he just drives left, gets to the line. Any small defender, he just goes by him and just uses his body. Another thing that stuck out in terms of Brogdon, he took four shots in the restricted area. He was three for four. He hit one from floater range as well, just straight up attack mode. And that finishing in the restricted area has actually been a strange issue for Brogdon this year. He's at just 54.2%, which is hellacious. Like you look at the Celtics, Tatum's at 70.1%, Jalen's at 70.1%, Grant's at 645 Smart's at 639 Like there's no way he should be at 54.2% in the restricted area. So much better job finishing. A lot of that is the Lakers defense. He was flying by these guys. And you love the fact that he had the eight free throws in this game as well. Like the drives that Brogdon has are so impactful for this team. He had 12 drives last night, goes three for five from the floor, five of six from the free throw line. So 11 of his points on those drives last night, right? So, I mean, if you think about it from that perspective, that is massive to get all those points because it's just something that I don't want to say it overwhelms the defense, but it wears down the defense. And on the season, that drive game he's brought to the Celtics is something they, quite frankly, didn't have last season. And I feel like in some sense with Brogdon, he's almost like a power back in the NFL, right? Where it's like it's body blows to the defense. Like when the Patriots had LeGarrette Blunt, like you don't want to tackle that guy. He's so big, like with the... NBA in a regular season game, you don't want to deal with that physicality all the time. Like, and I'm not comparing the players, but remember how tired the Celtics were where Giannis was banging into him all postseason long last year? Like, you don't want to deal with that shit during the regular season where Brogdon is just, he's coming downhill at you. He's a big body, especially for a guard, and you don't want to take that pounding. It just wears you down. Guys do not want to play against that level of physicality in the regular season. Oh, one other note on Brogdon. So I don't know how this is possible, but right now our friends at FanDuel have Russell Westbrook at plus 115 to win the sixth man of the year. Brogdon's at plus 185. I mean, I told you before the season, get on this Brogdon number. But anyway, getting back to my original point, how is Russell Westbrook right now the favorite to win? I get it like it's based on where the bets are coming in and all that. But look at that game last night. Westbrook plays 25 minutes. He's 4 of 14. He's a minus 10. Look at the impact that Brogdon had. He's a plus 11. He plays 39 minutes, 26 points. He's 8 for 15. 
from the floor. That's the impact of a six man of the year, if you will. Not what Russell Westbrook does. When, yeah, they brought Russell Westbrook back in overtime, but they didn't have him on the court down the stretch because they realized he's not one of their best players. With Malcolm Brogdon, it's the opposite. They needed him on the court. They needed him to win that game. Russell Westbrook was hurting the Lakers. Malcolm Brogdon was helping the Celtics, right? So I don't understand why right now Russell Westbrook's the favorite. And look, the other thing I would say is like the analytical community does not like Russell Westbrook. I really hope the voting doesn't go this way. Like, it's fine, the gambling line and all that, but the voting definitely should not go the way of Russell Westbrook. I certainly hope not. All right, I did want to get to Tatum because I feel like Tatum, this is another game where I said this after the Warriors game. Tatum's final line in terms of the shooting percentage, it doesn't look good, but you felt Tatum in this game. Like, so many times in the past, previous years in his career, he would have games where he didn't shoot the ball well, and the Celtics would lose, and... Tatum didn't really affect the game in other ways. And if you look at him last night, he has 30 points, but he was only 8 of 25 from the floor and 3 of 10 from deep. But again, it's the 12 free throws that he takes, right? He hit 11 of them. It's the fact he gets to the free throw line. And also the big thing for me with Tatum in this game, 15 points in the third quarter. And this is when Jalen Brown was dealing with that foul trouble where you needed Tatum to carry you in that third quarter to make sure it's a competitive game in the fourth. So that's the big thing. So even though it's the 30 points, you look at the 15 in the third to really keep the Celtics in this game. And just going through his game, I loved early on, he gets to his left hand, goes by LeBron. And I know LeBron isn't the defender that he once was, but one of the best players in the history of the league, you're attacking him right away. I just love that mentality from Jason Tatum. And then later on, Troy Brown, he misses a shot over Troy Brown, gets his rebound, big boys, and gets to the line. So again, Back-to-back possessions early in this game for Tatum where he's just getting downhill. And then you look at the third quarter. This is where he really took over, where he was just phenomenal. He hits a three to make it 69-62, hits a step back on LeBron, gets to the bucket on a cut. He's been a much better cutter this year. He's been in previous seasons. Then he had a huge feed to Malcolm Brogdon on the break where Brogdon hit that transition three I was referring to earlier. Just a really nice pass from Tatum. Hits a three to make it 81-79. Then again, he gets his own rebound and puts it back in to make it 83-81. So all in all, I thought Tatum was phenomenal in this game in terms of this is now another example of when you don't have it, you have to impact winning in other ways. And Jason Tatum did this against the Warriors, and he did it against the Lakers last night. And his defensive effort never is subpar. This guy brings it from a defensive perspective each and every night. So even though it wasn't the prettiest shooting night from Jason Tatum, you don't win that game without Tatum's 15 points in that third quarter. Okay, I do want to get to Missoula because this was interesting to me. And I'll give him credit for, with 6.44 left in the game, he goes to Al when Jalen's coming back in. He goes to Tatum, he goes to White, and he goes to Brogdon. So the gamble he took there, and this actually ended up working, is he gambled that Anthony Davis was not going to be able to score on Malcolm Brogdon, or at least they wouldn't feed Anthony Davis the ball, and they didn't. Malcolm Brogdon sitting there on essentially a guy that, what, is like almost seven feet tall and they're not giving it to Anthony Davis. Like they didn't take advantage of that. So it's a nice move by Joe Mazzulla because it really did open up the offense. Now, one thing I have an issue with right now is I'm starting to get worried about Jason Tatum and his minute total. So if you go back to last year, he plays 2,731 minutes, fourth in the NBA. Okay, then he plays 983 minutes in the postseason, obviously first in the NBA. So Mikhail Bridges led the NBA last year in minutes played, but if you take the combined, the regular season and the playoffs, Jason Tatum's at 3,714. And if you look at 
Bridges, he's at 3,355. So he played, what, 359 minutes more than the second highest guy. So a ton of minutes last year. And the difference between Tatum and Bridges is, I mean, it's obvious, right? Like Tatum has the ball all the time. Last year, he had a 32.1% usage rating. And the usage rating for Mikhail Bridges is 18.5%. So Tatum has to carry a lot more. I mean, that goes without saying, but he's has the ball all the time. So those are tough minutes, right? So this year you look at Tatum, he's second in the NBA in minutes played at 37.5, and they go up every month, October 36.3, November 36.8, December 37.4, and January 38.7. His last six games, he's played 40 minutes in five of them, 40, 48, 38, 40, 43, and 47 last night. So look, Fatigue is not an excuse for last season in the finals, but he was tired. I mean, that's a reality. I'm not saying that Jason Tatum, if he didn't play so many minutes, he would have been fine in the finals. Like you made those series more difficult against Miami and Milwaukee by not closing it out earlier. Like I'm not using this as an excuse, but it's a reality. He was worn down. He shut 36.7% from the field last year in the postseason. So not that I want to discredit the Warriors because they did a lot of schematic things defensively, but I'm just pointing it out. He was tired last year in the finals. Now, if you look at Tatum last night, he played the whole second quarter. He played the whole third quarter. He played the whole fourth quarter and he played all of overtime. He came out with 540 left in the first quarter. That was his only break. So he played 41 straight minutes in this game. He did the same thing against the Warriors a week ago Thursday. So I just, this is to me like, you are playing with fire. I know that Tatum is an Iron Man. He pretty much plays in every game. They gave him a day off like earlier this week, and I'm happy they did that. But you cannot continue to do this. I mean, you're going to burn the guy out. I mean, you don't want to have a Tom Thibodeau situation where all those guys in Chicago were worn down. Joe Mazzulla's got to get his shit together with the minutes. I mean, somebody's got to talk to him in like the sports science department. This is not good. I hate that he continues to do that. And I get it. He doesn't trust his bench right now in terms of the wing line. Hauser played five minutes in this game. Okay, so... This is an issue that has got to be addressed. Now, does that mean go get a wing at the deadline? Whatever it is, you cannot be playing Jason Tatum this amount of minutes. It's a regular season game. Like, the goal is to win the championship. And maybe Missoula is just like this super competitive guy. You can't do this. I mean, we see this happen in the playoffs with players. This does not happen during the regular season with most guys. This shit has got to stop with Missoula. The other thing I would mention, too, is I heard Bill mention this on his pod with his dad the other day. We are feeling the Gallinari absence because maybe that's the answer. If Gallo's actually on this team right now, he's actually eating up some of those minutes and they feel more comfortable letting Tatum go to the bench. And I was just looking at it. I mean, Gallinari would have brought so much to the table. You think about it, the fact he played over 700 regular season games in the NBA. So we know he's a vet. 38.3% career in terms of his three-point shooting. 38.1% last year on 4.5 a game. 40.6% on five attempts in 2021. 40.5% in 19 and 20. And catch and shoot threes last year is really good. 41.9%. He can post up a little bit too because he's such a big body. Last year on post ups, he had 146 of them. He was 37 of 66, 56.1%. Of players with at least 140 post ups, he was fifth in field goal percentage behind Jokic, LeBron, Durant, and Ayton. And then you look at the fact that he was 58th percentile as an ISO scorer, so a little above average. And I get it, he's not getting the best defender, but that's the point, right? It's additional scoring. He can barrel his way to the basket because he's got such a big frame. And then you look at him, he held up as an isolation defender last year, 74th percentile, 37% on 83 possessions defended. So when I look at it from that perspective, like I'm not saying the teams wouldn't try to take advantage of Gallinari in the postseason, but it's not like he's a complete sieve and he's not a small diminutive point guard where you can just attack the size, right? So he held up last year when it comes to that 
And then you look at like sort of the on-off numbers, the impact he has on the offense just because he's such a good shooter. So the past two seasons in Atlanta, the team had a 117.68 offensive rating with him off the court. And if you look at the best offense the past two years, the Jazz were at 116.2 last year. So Atlanta with Gallo on the court was better than that. Then you look at the fact that in 1920, he was at 18.53 in terms of the offensive rating with him on the court in Oklahoma City. By the way, off 103.2. So a 15.33 difference in terms of Gallo on the court and off the court from an offensive perspective. So that's just massive when you look at sort of the difference there. And that season, by the way, the Mavs led the league at 115.9. And we mentioned OKC 118.53 with Gallo on the court. And then you go back to 2015 when he's with or 1819 rather when he's with the Clippers 115.1 with him on the court the Warriors led the league that year at 115 so the point being the past four years that Gallo played in the NBA the offenses when he was on the court were better than the best offense in the NBA each season so we are really starting to feel that difference if you will without Gallinari on the court for the Celtics so he would help with your spacing and occasionally when you just need a bucket he's a guy that you could have gone to Oh, another thing I'd mention, too, in terms of Missoula, I don't know if this is a Tatum thing or this is a Missoula thing. It's 100 to 99 late in the game. Brogdon is on LeBron and Tatum goes to Dublin. LeBron's one of the best passers in NBA history. He's going to see that coming from a mile away. I don't know if that's something that's coached up. Hey, late in the shot clock, double. You don't double LeBron. You can't do that. It makes no sense. And then with 14.6 seconds left in the game, down three, I thought it was really smart that he didn't call a timeout, right? Because at that point, when you're down three, if you call the timeout, they can set up the defense and they can follow you. They decide not to take the timeout. And Al Horford gets a wide open three, by the way. Tatum feeds him in the corner. We all know what happened. Jalen gets the putback and all that. But it was a good shot they got. And that was because he didn't call a timeout. So one of the rare cases, I'll say, hey, that's really smart. And then with 4.1 seconds left, I thought they did a smart thing by that final play with LeBron where Al's on LeBron to start the play where he's sort of at the block. And the reason you put Al on him is you're going to pre-switch because you know LeBron's going to get a screen. So it makes it easier to switch there. But Jalen missed that, right? That's why Brogdon had to sprint out to LeBron. LeBron flies by him. That was actually a smart defensive design by the Celtics. But Jalen was supposed to be the guy that switched, not Malcolm Brogdon, which kind of fucked it up. So I thought that was another smart thing Joe did last night. But please, enough with the minutes and Jason Tatum. Clean that shit up. I mean, that is getting way too overwhelming. All right. Low-key huge week for Marcus Smart, like if you're a Marcus Smart fan. So if you look at it, this week, the Celtics had a 107.4 offensive rating, right? Which would be last in the NBA. 21 assists per game, that would be last. 14.8 turnovers per game, which is not good either. That'd be like right, right around 14th in the NBA. But if you look at it now in the season, the Celtics with Smart on the court, 120.1 offensive rating. Kings lead the league at 117.5. And then with them off, 114.8, that would be around 8th. Then you look at the assists per 100 possessions with Smart on 28.1, third in the NBA with Smart off 24.2, that would be 19th. You look at the turnovers, 12.7 with Smart on per 100 possessions, that would be third, 14.5 with him off, that would be 17th. So like we always think about Marcus Smart and the impact that he has defensively, but really where he's been missed over the past couple of weeks here, or the past week, I should say, is the offensive end of the floor, right? Somebody that can settle down the offense, make the correct play, make the correct reads. They really miss him offensively this week. All right. The other thing I would just mention is, man, the Celtics-Lakers thing, it's just cool. And two overtime games this year, even if one of them was because of that bullshit call. But man, I really start thinking about, I really wish I grew up in the 1980s when that rivalry was at its peak, right? We talked about Cedric Maxwell about this earlier this year. It's just like those guys genuinely hated each other. And you just think about the guys that played in those games, Kareem, Magic, Worthy, and then 
obviously on the Celtics side, you had Bird, you had McHale, you had Parrish, you had DJ, you had Walton, who you had in the eight on the 86 team, right? And that documentary ESPN did a couple of years ago, I really enjoyed it. It just got me so hyped up. Like, I really wish that I lived during that era to see those games. And look, they, they delivered last night, but I didn't have like that genuine hate for the Lakers when I was growing up, like I did for, say, for example, the New York Yankees, right? I didn't have that because the Celtics were not great when I was growing up. Now, I disliked them when the Celtics played them in two finals in three seasons, whatever it was in 08 and 2010. But I didn't have that anger that so many of the older people in the fan base have because they saw the 80s Celtics against the 80s Lakers. I wish I was alive for that. Okay, I, I will say this, though. The two favorite rivalries of my lifetime is the early Sox in the 03-04. Early by, I mean, early 2000s. 03-04, where 03, you had the Aaron fucking Boone, the home run off Tim Wakefield. And you had the Pedro, the Yankees are my daddy. Grady Little leaves him in too long. And then, of course, you have the A-Rod, Jason Veritek thing. And then, of course, the epic comeback. That that was awesome. Like, those were clearly the two best teams in baseball for a two-year period. You knew that those were the two best teams. And they were going to have to go through each other to get to the World Series. And those were just epic series. And you had epic moments. And then the other rivalry, of course, Peyton versus Brady that you had every year. Like there was genuine hate that we had for Peyton Manning as Patriots fans, if you will. All right. A lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Andrew Callahan of the Herald. We'll get into his great article this week about the dysfunction in the Patriots locker room. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, You've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know, like nothing nuts, just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Herald, it is Andrew Callahan. Had the huge article this week inside the most dysfunctional Patriots season under Bill Belichick. So first of all, Callahan, congrats on the story, man. I mean, this is unbelievably well done. When did you guys know that you had this story? Like, how long were you working on this thing for? Thank you. Yeah, and I couldn't have done it without Karen Grigge, my longtime con, living legend at the Herald in the Boston market, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but we decided a couple of weeks before the season ended, understanding like, look, we, we were watching the same show just every different Sunday. We knew the what it's bad coaching. We knew the why, because Belichick decided Patricia and Judge were better than seemingly every other coach in the league, most of whom coach offense. <laughs> and then it was just a matter of the how. How did it continue to get so bad? Because even if they made the playoffs, as I wrote early on, they were kind of dead on arrival. Like there were just so many problems with the infrastructure that you just can't overcome and have a good functioning football team. So we really worked on it for probably close to a month. Wow. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So were you guys surprised? And obviously you guys have great connections within the Patriots and all that. But were you surprised with how many people were willing to talk about and a lot of it's bad about Bill Belichick? I think, of course, you get that shock initially, but then also when you're in the day to day, which isn't to say obviously is inside as some of the players and other members of the organization we spoke to. 
you understand things are screwed up. So when they have to deal with that and confront it and go into work going, okay, we're going to top out at 20 points on Sunday if we're lucky. You know, like that frustration, that understanding yeah. that dates all the way back to May is something that, you know, I think makes them more likely to talk. But of course, I mean, this is the most tight-lipped organization in maybe sports. And so for us, you lean on relationships you had, those you develop over the course of the season, and then just make so many phone calls and texts where if it wasn't for professional purposes, you might have a restraining order because most <laughs> one of answered. And that's, that's just how it goes, though. You build your network, you try, you make contact, and then some guys naturally after a season like that want to get out of town. So, um, but we, we got enough people to talk to us and... As you saw what the results were, we had that story. Yeah, and some of the quotes you had in here were awesome. So I want to get to this one. So one of the sources says, it's always been about winning and doing what's best for the team. I really believe Belichick when he says that. I just think he really didn't understand how hard it was going to be. Then you had another guy that told you, I love Coach Belichick. He fucked us, right? I mean, it's a great quote. It's the money quote. But when do you think, like, because these are sources saying this, when do you think Bill knew that it wasn't working? When did he come to that realization? So I believe it was around early December. And if you remember that, it was actually December 1st, their loss to the Bills Thursday night football. Everyone's yep. watching this going, it's a screen every single time. And they're down. The only touchdown they score is actually a bubble screen to Marcus Jones, who takes it an RPO all the way to the house, which is not any sort of like offensive ingenuity from coaching. It's not any sort of your actual offensive players doing anything. It's a rookie returner who plays defense, and then he has to start a corner for the rest of the season, making a guy miss and going to the house. So I think then, you know, as I reported a few days after, players were given the day off, which never happens. Like you're in for meetings, corrections, film, treatment. They said, take the long weekend because it was something like three wow. games in 12 days. So I think around then, because I can tell you also, like the internal strife went beyond the locker room when we heard from Kendrick Bourne and Mac Jones the saying, coach me harder. It was higher up than that over how Patricia called the game the practice leading up to it was their worst of the season. And they were also coming off a game on Thanksgiving where, yeah, they lost to the Vikings. But you're looking going, okay, finally, this is the year two leap. Just like four months later from Mac Jones, 382 yards, career high, two touchdowns. And then you go all, all the way down from that game, even against a bad Vikings defense, to scoring seven points really through Marcus Jones offensively. And that's it. Um, it was it was then you're like, there's, there's nothing we can do at this point except for just try to eat by. Okay, so now I remember when you reported that, but this is fascinating to me that they gave him that Friday off. So was that Bill realizing that not only did they have a massive issue on offense, but they had an issue internally with guys being upset with the lack of a good offense? Is that where they were at, sort of? I think it's it's it probably a little bit of that. I can't speak specifically to Belichick, but I think it's one of those instances where as opposed to going back to your significant other and like continuing a fight that's obviously not going anywhere, you say, I'm, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to hang with the boys tonight. I will be back. We need some space. And like I mentioned, that was three games in 12 days. So it wasn't just the the singular event that was that 24 to 10 loss to Buffalo, which was much further apart than 14 points because they kicked that pathetic field goal at the end and he's punting with you know 10 minutes left. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. But it was it was an accumulation of that. And I think accumulation of the frustrations on offense, again, dating back to minicamp, OTAs, training camp, that results in that game where you're looking at their schedule and going, okay, for the second straight season, they're playing Buffalo twice in December or January. That's really going to decide the season. And then you fall that flat against a team that had been playing in Detroit uh, back-to-back weeks and had an even worse stretch than you did. Like I, I think there was a lot that went into that decision. 
Yeah, and I, now you remind me of that Bills game where it was like they punt down 24 to 3, as you mentioned. It's just like, what are you doing? Like, And that's where you had another guy tell you that they coached scared in that game. It makes sense. I mean, we all thought at the time, like, what is he? Is he just making sure like the score doesn't look as bad as it should, that the Bills aren't that much better than the Patriots? It really was embarrassing. So I want to get to another thing you had. So a lot of guys would ask, and this is from one of the sources, well, what's going to happen if the defense does this? And you would see they hadn't really accounted for that yet. And they'd say, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. That type of attitude got us in trouble. So this was startling a player hearing this from a player, right? Like that he's saying they didn't have an answer. So I'm wondering, like, did they just not know what the answer was? Like, why? Because if they knew, like, why wouldn't they tell him? Did they just not know what they should be doing if the defense gives them a certain look? Is that your understanding? So I'm inclined as much as I'm the guy that authored the piece that seeds more doubt in the Patriots organization than it has in the last 25 years to give them the benefit of the doubt here, because one of the lines that I think has been overlooked in the story, and this was from everyone we talked to, most everyone we talked to was that the coaches and players as dysfunctional as was worked in good faith. Like they were all trying their hardest. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. good enough. So let's say in that instance, you know, those players, which the key detail there is also players who had been in Shanahan systems, understanding this is how teams try to combat these wide zone play action boots and these route concepts and blah, blah, blah. We see these all the time where he did with other teams. You know, what, what are the answers? The coaches might've been right to say, Hey, it's May, it's June. We'll get to it in camp. Let's get the basics down for everybody else who doesn't know what's going on. It's the annoying kid on the front row of class. Who's like three chapters ahead and just raises his hand and wants to call <laughs> out to like, I know what happens next. Let's get to there. There might've been some of that. But okay. I think ultimately you're right. The answer is unsatisfactory. They didn't handle it that way. And I think the end of that quote is that kind of attitude got us in trouble. And you saw that because then they they didn't even end up running the McVeigh stuff after September. Well, and yeah, that's another really, really interesting part of the piece. So going back to the beginning, you and Karen point out that they reduced Josh's offense and tried to do the McVeigh Shanahan scheme that we all heard about so much. And that emphasized, as you guys point out in the article, outside zone runs and play action. Okay. But then they throw out a play action, or I should say 83 outside zone or stretch run plays. And you guys point out in the piece, but they had a league low five bootleg play action passes, which you guys also say, you know, that's the most common complimentary passing scheme off of those runs. So basically, I'm trying to figure out how that's possible. Did they not realize that the bootleg play action comes off those outside zone runs? Did they just take one part of the McVeigh Shanahan offense? Like, I don't really understand. Like, if you're going to implement that, running scheme why wouldn't you use bootlegs like i don't understand the like the lack of connection there yeah it's this is among the many bewildering decisions and commitments that the patriots were just so stubborn of like we're not going to be a boot team and the funny part about running those five play action rollouts is they were not only tied for lowest and fewest in the league they were tied with tom brady in the bucks brady who famously (laughs) never rolled out and booted in new england because it just didn't suit his skill set and then you draft Store brand knockoff Brady as a prospect, not certainly with the career, and Mac Jones, you're probably not going to boot him either. So they tried it. Like I remember watching OTAs and doing a hit with your old friends at EEI after and telling Christian Fourier, like, yeah, Mac Jones is booting a whole lot. He goes, What? Like, this is largely <laughs> the same offense. I'm like, Yeah, I, I'm just telling you what I saw. It's May. Like, we don't have to freak out, but this is this is new. And so I think it gets to, and Belichick has said this all the time, you want to marry your run and pass games, make everything look the same in the first second after the snap to the defense. So then you can exploit them in, you know, in a maximum way after that with the linebackers drawn up, throw behind them, or misdirection going left, pull it back right, any number of different changes. 
And they just refuse to do that. So any benefit of play action, any benefit of creating those voids and zones just never happened. So they made it intentionally more difficult on themselves because they just simply didn't want to be a boot team, which I kind of understand. But if you're going to commit to that, don't simultaneously commit to the run that works best (laughs) off of that, especially when you've had all these other pulling guards, play action, like man block stuff that it works so well with Brady and a guy like him still a quarterback here for 20, 22 years. Yeah, it seems like stupid. If you're going to do that, you don't use if you're not going to use the bootleg, don't use all these outside zone run schemes. It doesn't make sense. It's a, it's perplexing. So you also had somebody in here where you're asking, like, why change the offense? Right. And the quote was, you tell me, I don't know. So why did they did was Patricia and Judge not able to run Josh's offense? Or was this just they felt like hey, Josh's offense isn't going to work anymore. We'd like to make something easier. And we see this trend in the NFL where all these teams are trying to copycat what Shanahan and McVay do. Like, what was the reason for the switch? Yeah, there's a lot there. First, I, I want to, like, big picture acknowledge that when the Patriots decided in 2022, okay, we're going to pivot, we're going to change our offense, we want to do something new. They're not trying to be on the cutting edge. They're going to all of these trends from like 2017. RPOs and the Eagles right up to the Super Bowl. Let's install some RPOs five years later. The Shanahan boot stuff, when Kyle leaves Atlanta, goes to San Francisco, they bomb that season. But 18-19 is like, whoa, he's he's cooking with gas here. And McVay, same thing, rises up 17-18. So they think these are all like new cutting edge ideas, which defenses have since solved over the last four or five years. That being said, the, the pain cuts deeper also, putting that stuff aside that the reason they changed is not only because, okay, you want to simplify the offense kind of buckled under its own weight. It got, it it was too overblown. It was too built out. You can't just have a foundation. If you're doing a middle of a million different things is you can only teach and coach what you know. And when you put Joe judge and Matt Patricia in charge, it's gotta be simpler because these are inexperienced guys. And the fact that you reduce the offense, okay, you don't need a complicated offense to succeed, but you need to master the concepts that you do want to install and coach and teach and rep over and over again. And they couldn't do that. So it was part to help the coaches as well as the players. It just turned out that it hurt both of them because Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, their stock was down to start the season. And obviously it's much lower after the worst offensive season under Belichick and Patriots. Well, and it's interesting because like we've said so many times before, like, hey, do what's best for the quarterback, right? Like no matter what NFL team is like, build your offense around like we see Lamar Jackson, how much they run in. Baltimore. They designed a whole offense around his ability to run. We see what they're doing with Jalen Hurts with the Eagles, right? Like you want to make it easier for your quarterback. But the thing to me about this that is so fascinating is they had to make life easier for the guys in charge of their offense. Like that should never be the case where you have to simplify things for the coaching staff, not the quarterback. You have to do this for the coaching staff, which is just unbelievable to me, Callahan. It's a great thing from that you guys had in the story as well. So the judge stuff to me is maybe the most juiciest out of all this. So Bill would blast him in practice, which I thought was interesting. So what was that about? Like, so we knew that Mac and Judge, like it felt like, okay, maybe that's not a great relationship, as you guys pointed out as well. But was Bill mad that the quarterbacks weren't performing well? Is this maybe going back to like the in the game where the plays aren't getting in on time? Like, why was Bill so mad at or I mean, I get these are individual times, but what was Bill's biggest frustration, you think, with Joe Judge? Well, speaking of frustrations with Joe Judge, just going back to the offense point for a second, imagine being Mac Jones, you know, guy who graduates in four years with a master's degree, speaks three different languages, master Josh McDaniels offense as a rookie. You come in, okay, the offense is going to be simpler, but then you feel like you're teaching your position coach in year two. Like these frustrations (laughs) went way back and only grew with every single passing game and week and month. And he didn't handle it the best way. But now I think as much as you can understand Mac being frustrated and blowing his lid in all these different games, 
this backstory will be kind of adds to that. Um, as for Belichick blasting judge in practice, this is not entirely uncommon for other assistants. This actually okay. is, as I understand, is like an old Bill Walsh trick where, you know, you would kind of uh, imbue this guilt onto the players by yelling at their coaches with whom obviously they get close with because the assistants are the ones spending the most time with the player. So you feel bad because you're the, the, the reason your coach quote unquote screwed up. Um, the thing about it though, is it became more common. My understanding is as the season went on, and this speaks to something, mm. I think at the start of that section of the story where players sense the judge was being phased out, which is really uncommon for a guy who comes in projecting is like, I'm the co-offensive coordinator. I might be the passing game coordinator. And so from October on, you just saw less and less of him or they did. And then in practice, you would hear more and more of Belichick yelling at him. And that was because of basic breakdowns, you know, not necessarily with Bailey Zappi, but soon after with Mac Jones. And I think that was really the reason is obviously the production wasn't good. The quarterback play was worse. And they had two offensive touchdowns in a three-game span with two wins over the Jets and one game against the Colts, who all use the same defensive plan. Like, it's just that, that all goes back to coaching, as we all wrote at the time and have since many, 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 many times over. Yeah, that's funny. They should have been like, hey, uh, Mac, we're going to talk about the offense. Don't tell jo- Joe, like, get away from <laughs> Joe. Make sure you get in this meeting before Joe gets here, because we don't want him involved in this situation. So you also and you mentioned like he's loud, projected as the co-offensive coordinator. You had a source say judge would speak extra loudly in meetings, tried to project like he was the guy. I think that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. So is he is he like an egomaniac or is this like is he like insecure that he's not being taken seriously? Like, what is that about? Just weird. Yeah, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze Joe from afar because I've not yeah. spent a whole lot of time with him. Sure. And, you know, obviously you observed him a lot during training camp and certain practices and, and heard a ton about him, uh, including a lot of stuff that didn't make the story. But the stuff that we could absolutely commit to in print, it, Joe strikes me and strikes some other people in the building as someone who solves problems by doing the same things just harder you know like it, it's mm. it, which obviously in, in some ways is the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again uh, and expecting different results so I, I think you admire some way that there's some persistence there but when so clearly you're ill-equipped and don't have the self-awareness just to step back and go okay what do i need to learn you know that becomes an issue because then you just start for lack of a better phrase, talking out of your ass. And what did we see him do at the end of his last season coaching the Giants in those <laughs> yeah. press conferences was literally talk himself out of a job. The ownership had committed to year three of the Joe Judge experience, and it gets caught off after year two. So I think when you're someone like Mac Jones or Belichick or other players in that building who know what they're talking about, and you hear someone just go on and on, his voice gets louder, it keeps hammering the same points and try to convince you. You're like, I don't need any of this. There are no style points to be gained here. Give me the substance. And when there's no substance, you just can't BS people like that. So again, I don't I don't think it's like some huge character flaw with Joe Judge. It just seems that he was put in a bad spot, made it worse on himself. And part of that goes to Belichick. But obviously, there's a reason we heard more about Judge than even Patricia as we started to report on this story. Yeah, my favorite, I've mentioned this multiple times on the podcast, my favorite judge thing is when he said, when he was with the Giants, that he had guys on other teams that signed for more money calling him to come back, that they wanted to come back and play for him. I wish yeah. a report, I wish somebody was like, hey, Joe, name one guy, name one guy that actually called you and said he wanted to come back. Just put one name out there that so we can uh, see if that's actually true, because everybody knew that wasn't true whatsoever. So you mentioned Patricia, so it does seem like from... A personal standpoint, people like Patricia. It's just he was ill-equipped for the job, right? There wasn't like Joe Judge rubbing people the wrong way. There wasn't that with Patricia. No, I mean there there were some personal issues there, and honestly, part of the story is you're, you're trying to not 
repeat as much of the history as like we all saw an experience in the season everyone wants to forget. So part of it was skipping over, you know, his play calling really suffered and hurt the offense. But it was most glaring, obviously, in the Buffalo game. And I think that's where you started to hear people speak up a little bit more internally, not only to the media like Kendrick Bourne, but other people about Patricia. So, you know, the, the issues he had interpersonally, some people in the building certainly still don't like him. I think it speaks to the larger problem with this operation, which was just a lot of arrogance on his behalf, Belichick, and obviously Judge, and thinking they could just roll in and do this. But the one thing that I kept hearing about Patricia was we knew he was really trying to learn. Like he was a better listener than Judge was in certain instances about the Shanahan offense or people who raised questions and trying to find out, you know, what the solutions could be. And so they knew, A, first-year offense coordinator is a really hard job. B, first-year offensive line coach is a really hard job. And he had both of these. So he probably was screwed the most by Belichick in this whole operation as much as, you know, everyone else in the offense has, could raise their hand and say, no, 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 that was me. Um, it was just an impossible – task to begin with. I think people in the building recognize that there still had some had issues with him, but they at least knew more often than with judge he's working in good faith. There's just no way he can overcome what he's doing. And his ideas are also bad, but he's at least trying. All right. So now that Bill O'Brien has been hired as the offensive coordinator, what does that mean for Matt Patricia and Joe judge? Like what are they getting reassigned to? Like, is there a possibility that maybe one of them could be gone? It's a possibility that, yes, there one could be gone. And I lean more on the reporting of others now, but uh, they're interviewing offensive line coaches. So Matt Patricia, if mm -hmm. he does come back, and I can tell you that from what I've heard, he's undecided on his future. Okay, mm -hmm. so he won't go back in the same capacity as a play caller, offense coordinator, won't be as an offensive line coach. The defensive staff hasn't moved. Gerard Mayo's back. No other openings there. Maybe he goes back to this kind of like general projects role and helping out with Belichick. But I don't know where he would go. And that's part of where I think – as loyal as Belichick is to these guys and some other friends of his in the business, he's still cutthroat. Like I see this as him treating almost like an in-house free agent going, Hey, Deb McCourty, you don't really want to leave. Matthew Slater, you don't want to leave. Here's our offer. This is what it's going to be. If you want to come back, we know you will. This is it. So if he comes back, it'll be a, just an extreme demotion. Joe judge, I think ultimately will end up on special teams. They have not announced or indicated or any reports about Cam Accord or Joe Houston. Uh, being let go. They're currently in Vegas coaching the Shrine Bowl. Accord and Houston are both there. But you can't bring Joe Judge back on offense. Like you just you just can't do it. And, and he's certainly not going to defense. So I think, yes, he'll end up back on special teams. But that means for a quarter Houston, I don't know. Yeah. And look, if you bring him back on offense, Mac may legitimately fight the guy this year. Based, <laughs> yeah. Based on what happened last year, like it's only going to get worse if, if Mac has to have conversations with this guy every day. So it certainly makes sense. So one Belichick note that you had in here in terms of the the Bears decision in terms of Mac only playing like those three series, that decision vexed players to have basically Mac only. And it was pre-planned, right, that he was only going to yeah. play like a couple series or so. So did guys basically feel like, hey, man, like our quarterbacks getting booed, you know that you're pulling them out of the game like they just felt bad for essentially their guy. Is that sort of how you read that situation? Yeah, their guy, a guy who's in the building from 530 until sometimes, you know, eight, nine at night. Um, a guy who obviously is a captain. He's your quarterback who has his issues, but was also expressing them sometimes on behalf of his teammates. And again, in my opinion, Matt could have done a much, much better job with the offense inventing those frustrations and it wasn't the right time or place. And that rubs some people the wrong way in the organization, but for the most part players had his back. So I just think they also look and go, okay, if you're pulling him after three series and not inserting him into the game and he's the quarterback, what kind of leash do I have? 
you know, you could, you kind of look inward of just what does that say for everyone else in the team? Because just like with the coaching staff in the system, you look at the quarterback and go, there's no way Belichick put him in a position to succeed that night coming off of an injury from which he was not fully healed, by the way, which is why they had that rotation. So mm-hmm. you're putting him at risk then you're not giving him a chance to succeed. Like what the hell is going on here? And I think it did <laughs> become a tipping point because they just had to go play the Jets and everyone gets up for the Jets, especially in a short week. But there were people who were legitimately pissed about that decision. It just became at this point, such ancient history. We didn't dive into it, but yeah, everyone thought that Mac, I, I don't want to say everyone, Many people thought that Mac got screwed in that whole incident on Monday night. Gotcha. Yeah. So obviously it seems like Bill, obviously he now knows that he completely fucked this thing up and they go out and they get Bill O'Brien, who's been linked to the Patriots forever. So how much ownership does he have? Like, or is this going to be like the Bill O'Brien offense? Like we'll see him like Bryce Young, all these RPOs, even going back to Deshaun Watson when he had him, like he's really catered his offense to his personnel in some sense, like the guys he's had over the years, do you think he has complete control of this thing, like sort of like Josh had? It is funny because I had heard early in the search, like, okay, O'Brien's a guy. We're going through the motions here. And it wasn't anything as rock solid as you could report. And some people are wrong. Some are guessing. Turns out, obviously, that was the case. So I just wondered, Bill O'Brien, coming back into the building for that second interview on Monday. Like, he's got a little swagger to him. You know, like, how many people come in from the outside <laughs> into one Patriot place with so much leverage like he has? Ownership wants to. Coaching needs you. Belichick is looking you in the eye as like a former ex-head coach, former offensive coordinator, worked under Nick Saban, all his personal history and success. You don't get to dictate terms, but you get to dictate terms as much as you want if you're a Bill O'Brien. And so I know Jeff Howe from The Athletic reported he'll have input on those coaches. And I think at this point, A, it's a wise decision because Belichick's flavor or preference for offensive coaches has been a disaster the last few the few years. Um <laughs> But B, you know, he's going to be he's going to be the head coach of the offense. So let him run that, empower him. He's someone who's got a ton more experience than he did when he was last year in New England in 2011. So he's not going to be any sort of savior. It's just really, really important they nail these hires. So whether it's Ryan Wendell or Adrian Clem or Sean Jefferson who comes aboard, um, he will have a say. I don't know whether he gets to make the call or maybe even bring people from Alabama. But the fact that he's in the room with Belichick making those decisions says something that like a lot of things recently were kind of in unprecedented times here with Belichick in New England. Gotcha. Yeah. So Mac's going to be so fired up. Like I got this guy, (laughs) I got a smart coach back who like he has a previous relationship with. We know that Bill didn't coach Mac, but Mac knew him from when Bill first got the job at Alabama. So Mac's going to just be so fired up that he's got like an actual professional offensive coordinator again, like he had with Josh McDaniels. Oh, Callahan, before I let you go, I referenced your article like a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago now, the receivers article that you had out there, like there's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of receivers maybe on the trade market. You had, obviously this is because of the DeAndre Hopkins. He's going to be out of Arizona, it looks like. But you had Mike Evans because of cap casualty, T Higgins, Keenan Allen, Jerry Judy. So do you think the Patriots will actually get involved? Because it seems like there's an opportunity there. Yeah, there there really is. And it'll be interesting with the prices for someone like Hopkins, who now, of course, you look at, okay, Bill O'Brien's coming in, everything is great. This couldn't have gone better, except for maybe the one guy you would love to just kind of like ship over is probably saying thanks, but no thanks, because he has a no trade clause and obviously a history with uh, Bill O'Brien. But it's as much as I say we're in unprecedented times here with Belichick, you look at their history of paying receivers. I've said this everywhere. I've said it a million times. They don't pay market value for number one receivers. The game is different than it was when Belichick obviously took over and a lot of these roster building uh, philosophies were put into place in 2000. But through that time, Randy Moss, Wes Walker, even Brandon Cooks 
if they re-signed, it was on the Patriots' terms. If they didn't want to re-sign, they left like Welker did for Denver in 2012. So do they move away from that? Like Nelson Aguilar is the richest receiver contract in New England history. Let's let's go with that. And so wow. if that didn't work out, which was semi-predictable giving a, a, a contract to a guy coming off a career year in free agency, like do they really want to go back and touch that stove again? I don't know. I would do it because, again, I think the game has changed. And you have players like Justin Jefferson, Stephon Diggs, literally breaking the double teams against the Patriots, I think was probably the number one reason Belichick goes, I can solve that problem schematically. Why am I going to give a player like that all this money? I just think if they do, it'll be via trade. I spent a lot of time in that article talking about Keenan Allen, which would be about $14 million. The player I would watch, though, is Jerry Judy. Great Mm -hmm. numbers against band coverage. Still rookie cross-control contract. I don't know what Denver wants to do. But if they don't think they can resign him and Russell Wilson is really sucking up a lot of oxygen on that cap, then I think you look at him and say, if they pick up his fifth-year option, maybe we'll do the same. You could even rent him for a year, I like Brandon Cooks. So that that's a name, I think, to watch out for because then they wouldn't have to pay him. But you certainly are giving up a day two pick, I would assume, uh, maybe day one if it's Judy and a pick swap. Yeah, and when you wrote that article, that's a guy I wanted to because I'm like, all right, he's relatively yeah. young, right? And Obviously, Denver wants picks because they need picks after the Russell Wilson trade. And the other thing is, like, I know this is a small thing and Mac only really played for him for like half the season. But you have that connection, right? The Alabama connection. He played with Jerry Judy. Like you have Tua who played with Waddle. You have Jalen Hurts, who, of course, he played with Devontae Smith. Get Mac an Alabama guy like I'm all in. And you mentioned like some of the numbers against man coverage, like the separation numbers are really mm-hmm. good. Like if you look at next gen. So, man, I'd be all on board, Kellen, if they could get Jerry Judy. And I would assume the price for Jerry Judy in terms of a trade would be lower than, say, for example, T Higgins, because you could argue like T Higgins is like the more established guy. He's on the Bengals. He's played in big games. So it probably would be lower, I would think, for Judy than Higgins. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think also, I mean, you know, maybe this is sound reasoning, maybe it's not. But T. Higgins' profile, obviously, is much higher. Playing on the Bengals, who've been to -to back-to-back AFC championship games, he's a 1B in some people's eyes. And you just look at him as a GM and be like, if we make him our 1A, we'll be fine. Like, he's essentially kind of doing this in a loaded offense. We've seen a lot of the Bengals. I don't know how many people see that situation in Denver and go, you know, Jerry Judy could be the same because the raw number's there, the tape isn't there. I would argue just the quarterback play obviously has dragged him down. So if you elevate the situation yeah. around him, maybe Judy hits his stride exactly what you want in this next two-year window. But the Patriots really, they don't need to go all in. But if Mac Jones is going to be your guy, and that's a separate conversation, and I think he certainly will be in 2023, you got to invest everything around him, you know, at least in the short term to maximize this window before he gets his second contract or you get someone else in here who's probably going to be more expensive than Mac on a rookie deal. So, yeah, I would look at Judy – and the reason I mentioned Keenan Allen so much in that piece is the same reason you just talked about. The separation can play inside and out. Uh, good numbers versus man coverage. And so one of those names, like I think you just you got to get in the building. Give yourself a shot because I, I love Jacoby Myers. I think he's undervalued. But if you bring him back, you're essentially running it back with the same skill group that everyone the last two years and even longer has just gone. It's not good enough in the modern league. Like they need an upgrade and it's got to be via trade. Well, to something you said earlier, maybe this is a situation where the Patriots catch on to a trend like a couple of years later, like they realize, oh, like we should trade for a number one receiver like the Bills did it years ago. It's Stephon Diggs. We see all these teams trading for receivers. Hey, maybe we'll do it. But yeah, I mean, they owe it to themselves too, Callahan. They owe it to their quarterback. But you drafted the guy 15th overall. Give him the best chance to succeed. So you might as well go out and get him like a legitimate bona fide number one option. It, it helps the organization too, not just the quarterbacks. I really hope that they do that. I'd be pumped, by the way. Now I'm going to be thinking about Judy all day while I'm watching these 
championship <laughs> games. You know what I mean? I'm going to be fired up about Jerry Judy next year. All right, that is Andrew Callahan from the Herald. Make sure to read his piece and Karen Gregan as well, Inside the Most Dysfunctional Patriots Season under Bill Belichick. Callahan, thank you so much for the time today, man. And great story, great stuff today, man. Really enjoyed it. You got it. Appreciate the time, Brian. All right, coming up next, we'll get to a couple of calls. And I also want to get to one thing on the Red Sox that I'm starting to buy into. We'll do that next. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. All right, great stuff is always there for my buddy Andrew Callahan. And again, congratulations to him. That was an excellent story that they had in the Herald this week. All right, we got time for a call. Let's do that. 617-396-7172 is the number. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, it's Zach from Rochester again. Uh, I'm just calling in to, to ask a quick question. And I'm, I'm really wondering what your thoughts are on this whole Gerard Mayo, uh, Bill O'Brien thing going on. It, it, it feels like this is the actions of, like, you know, the last days of, of Belichick, you know what I mean? Like, it feels like it's just Kraft coming in here and saying, no, you're not going to let uh, one of your possible successors or, or one of the possible heirs to the throne get away and go someplace else. Um, it seems like the Belichick phenomenon has been to, you know, allow all of the potential usurpers uh, to leave, to uh, get out of town uh, because that way it sort of helps consolidate his power. Uh, but it feels like Kraft is stepping in here to say, no, 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 uh, you know, we're keeping Mayo, we're bringing in uh, Bill O'Brien as the uh, insurance policy. Uh, because that way, you know, I think Kraft feels like uh, that gives him more leverage. That gives him someone to go to um, if things go south here. I uh, just wanted your opinion on that. Thanks. All right. So a lot of meat on the bone there. The first thing I'll say in terms of the Gerard Mayo thing, I don't think Bill has any problem with them keeping Gerard Mayo. In fact, I'm sure that he pushed to keep Gerard Mayo, not that it wasn't a craft idea, but I'm sure Bill wanted that. Like Bill doesn't have any issue with Gerard Mayo. Bill named him a captain. He said, what, in 2009, when they drafted him, this guy's going to be a coach one day. So he loves Gerard Mayo. So I don't think that Bill has an issue with that whatsoever in terms of keeping Gerard Mayo around. Now, the one thing I will say where I think you're completely spot on is with the future of the organization. Bill is not going to have a say in who the next head coach is. Why should he, right? I mean, this is the Crafts team and Bill's decision-making lately has not been great as we're talking about in terms of making Matt Patricia and Joe Judge the offensive coordinators. No, this is going to be a Kraft decision. Robert and Jonathan are going to hire the next head coach of the Patriots, and I do truly believe that it's going to be Gerard Mayo. They want to keep Gerard Mayo around, and we've already seen the teams over the past couple of years have had a lot of interest in Gerard Mayo. So I feel like, hey, let's keep Gerard Mayo around if we're the Crafts. Let's see what he does over the next couple of years. And when we're ready to make that change, Gerard Mayo's our guy. So I don't think that you're off on that whatsoever. I, I don't see why Bill should have any 
decision on who his successor is, right? I mean, this isn't like a college football situation. Remember, you always had like the coach in waiting. You had that at Texas with like Will Muschamp for Mac Brown, and then Will Muschamp ended up as a mess of head coach. But you also had it with like Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Bowden. You're not going to have that with the Patriots. There's no way that's going to happen. All right, so I did want to hit on the Sox briefly because I'm starting to buy into Chris Sale having a bounce back year. Okay, so I'll tell you why. So in a limited sample size last year, okay, and like I said, limited sample size, Chris Sale's velocity was closer to what it was in 18, his last like good season. Because in 19, remember when we would find out he had to get shut down, he wasn't healthy, his numbers were not good, and the velocity was down. So if you look at 2022, his four-seamer was at 94.9 miles an hour. You go back to 18, that was at 95.2. So not quite to the 95 level, but he's closer. If you look at 2021, he was at 93.6 miles an hour, and in 19, he's at 93.4. Okay, so he's closer in terms of the velocity on the fastball. Same thing with the rest of his pitches. Slider is at 79.2 miles per hour in 2022, 79.7 in 18. If you look at that number in 2021, it's at 78. So that number was down in 2021. As for the changeup, last year, 88.2 miles per hour. If you go back to 18, it was at 87. So it was actually harder last year. 2021, it's 86.5. And in 19, it was all the way down to 85.2. So that's one thing if you're looking at it, that the velocity is much closer last year to what it was back in 2018. And I get it. It's a very small sample size, but he wasn't reaching those numbers in 2021. It's the second year back from the Tommy John. Okay, the other thing I would mention is this. The big thing for sale this year is going to be the changeup. So we mentioned the velocity on the heater back and the changeup and the slider, all that back. But the big thing is, does he have feel for his changeup? So the changeup in 2021 was horrendous. 330 expected batting average against. Okay, so really bad. If you look at 19, 297 expected batting average against. Really bad. You go back to 18, his last good season, 204 expected batting average against. So that number was really good in 2018. So I know that health is a major concern, but the issues that he had in 2021, he could not get righties out because he didn't have his changeup. So if you're looking about at two things to say, okay, why is Chris Sale going to be back to the guy that he was in 2018? Not even back to that, but can we get 80% of that version of Chris Sale? The reason for a bounce back is the velocity was creeping towards where it was in 2018. And secondarily, he showed more feel for his changeup last year than he did in all of 2021. And I get it. Like I said, very small sample size. But I'm looking for hope for Chris Sale, and that's it. Okay, another thing. So I'm going to do two positive Red Sox things today, believe it or not. The other thing I'm going to mention is I could see Kike Hernandez looking more similar to the guy that we saw in 2021 than 2022 when he was dealing with injuries. And the reason that's important is Kike Hernandez can get really as hot as anybody in Major League Baseball. And that isn't hyperbolic when I say that, because if you look at him, okay, so go back to 2021, June 27th to August 26th. So a good period of time there, right? 51 games, 232 plate appearances. Now, actually, this is when they moved Kike to leadoff. And he actually, the first game he went back to leadoff, he hit the home run off Garrett Cole, the day that they had a million home runs off Garrett Cole at Fenway. It was a Saturday. And then till the end of August, like I mentioned, when he had COVID, 297 batting average during that stretch, 409 on base percentage, which was fifth in baseball during that stretch, 563 slug, 972 OPS, which was 12th in baseball during that stretch, 14.7% walk rate, which is eighth. That's the big one, right? Like he's locked in. He has complete control of the plate. He had 11 bombs, by the way, during that stretch. And Fangraph's war had him at 3.0, which was second to Juan Soto. So from a war perspective, he was the second most valuable player in baseball from June 27th of 
2021 to August 26 of 2021, right? So, and then you look at the playoffs. Remember, he had 408. He slugged 837. On base was 423 at a 1260 OPS. Remember, he went nuts. He could not get out at the beginning of that Astros series. He's hitting all these home runs. So, yes, he's going to have downtimes. But the thing about Kike Hernandez, the reason I think he's so vital to this team, obviously the defense is the most important and now that he has to play shortstop. But you didn't really have that version of Kike Hernandez last year where he got insanely hot. And we've seen he's capable of doing it. He did it in the playoffs. He did it during that stretch that we just referenced. And Kike last year, like we mentioned how bad the season was. I think one of the underrated things about the Red Sox is we know how much they missed him defensively in the outfield. He played just 93 games. He played 134 the year prior. That what? So you're talking about a 41 game difference. So we talk about all the time, like the issues this team had, and there were a ton of them. But Kike Hernandez's health really hurt the Red Sox last year. And it wasn't just in the field. It was actually at the plate as well. So I'm feeling a little bit optimistic about the Red Sox right now. Chris Sale bounce back. Kike Hernandez is going to have a couple of stretches where he gets red hot. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.